Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The A-List, the podcast that asks the world's top advertising professionals how they got started in the business. I'm Tom Chrisman, Chief Creative Officer at DeMassimo Goldstein, an inspiring action agency in New York City. And today, I get to talk to Omid Farhang, who is the Chief Creative Officer of Momentum Worldwide, a McCann agency that's uh, experiential, and he's had a long and storied career, starting at Crispin in Boulder. Uh, He'll talk about that. We also talk about growing up as having a father who was uh, possibly the only Iranian-American cowboy. And we'll talk about some advice he got from uh, Alex Bogusky at Crispin. And a lot of great advice for young creatives um, that are looking to get into the business. So be sure to uh, listen up and listen well. And of course, the A-List is brought to you by Ad House Advertising School. Advertising age called Ad House New York's newest, smallest, and arguably hippest ad school. Their philosophy is that an ad class is only as relevant as the professionals who teach it. Ad House classes are taught by the best in the biz at the agencies where they work. You can get 10 weeks of classes for just 600 bucks. To apply, go to adhousenyc.com. And for the latest news, follow Adhouse NYC on Facebook. And now, my interview with Omid Farhang. So it's Omid Farhang or Farhang? Farhang. Yeah, just okay. Farhang, yeah. I was sure that I was saying your last name wrong and that I was saying your first name right. I'm alarmed. Omid I'm, Farhang. I'm alarmed when people get it right the first time. That's Omid. Like, that usually means that you grew up in like Westwood and with around a lot of Iranian kids. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So where, that's where we usually start. Um, where where did you grow up? So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Um, I'm the child of Iranian immigrants. Um, unlike the child of many Iranian immigrants who came to the U.S. right around 1979, 1980, yeah. my dad actually immigrated to the U.S. in 1962. Wow. Um, and through a very um, unlikely sequence of events, became the owner of a country western nightclub called the Maverick, um, which became this sort of like country country western landmark in Tucson, Arizona. And he owned it for 40 years. Um, I bartended there through college. My brother bartended there through college. So you grew up, you were uh, Iranian uh, American growing up in a, in a honky tonk. Very much so. And actually what's great is like, you know, so he owned it for 40 years and in the pre-Ticketmaster, pre-Live Nation era, these big acts would roll into town um, and they would do their performance at their large venue. And then the the next immediate question would be, you know, where am I getting drunk tonight? Right. And so as a result, you know, my dad ended up hosting the likes of Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Merle Haggard and Charlie Pride. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. It, it, I, I like to believe that my dad is the world's only Iranian cowboy. If yeah. there are any others out there, I certainly have not been, been made That's aware. That's amazing. Of is he still he's still around? He's still uh, doing the honky tonk thing or he, he ret- sold it? He retired from the business um, in, I believe, 2004. Uh, he sold the business. Yeah. Um, so it, the Maverick lives on in Tucson, Arizona, and it's yeah. still the it's still premier, there. The, to do a quick ad, it's still the premier spot to listen to live country music. In you the heard Southwest. it here first, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> on WTOM. <laughs> um, so what what was that like growing up? Uh, with, how did you know about advertising? How did you find out about that? Like when was that sort of – when did that – did you did you like advertising as a kid? Did, were you sort of drawn to things always like yeah. that? Yeah. Well, 
I would say, you know, unlike uh, or like most children of immigrants, um, I was taught at a pretty early age that um, you're either a doctor, a lawyer, or a loser. Um, so I yeah. wasn't really aware of many professions outside of that realm that would make me feel fulfilled and make my parents proud of me. Um, yeah. uh, I was aware of advertising in a different way. I mean, I remember having a VHS tape in at all times in the pre-internet era and just recording things that I loved. And right. as I look back on the things that were on those tapes, those were my influences that sort of shaped my creative taste, even though I didn't realize it at the time. And it was things like, you know, Saturday Night Live and Yo! MTV Raps um, and In Living Color and The Simpsons. And inevitably, Nike commercials would end up on those tapes, too. And mm -hmm. I didn't really... Um, on purpose or they were just happened to be in the show? No, just like I would seek them out and uh, I would record them out of a desire to have them be able to watch them again. And I, the, the point being, like, I didn't really distinguish them separately of my favorite entertainment. Right. You know? Yeah. And so that's kind of the way you got to think about advertising, right? When yeah, I think I think as a kid, I just it didn't occur to me that those things that I loved would ever um, seep into any type of professional endeavor. I kind of right. felt like. What's Ad a doctor going to do with yeah, the, an you know, adult life as you go and you sort of play a part until five o'clock and then, you know, a horn sounds and you slide down the back of a brontosaurus and you yeah. get to be yourself for a few hours in the evening before yeah. you do it all over again. And um, so I actually get bummed out when I interview kids and they tell me um, they're studying marketing because I just can't help but think to myself like, no, 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 like be interested in a bunch of other things because the the, yeah. the confluence of those other things will be what makes you interesting and special in the industry once you discover it. That's interesting. So you don't think people should go to school for marketing uh, necessarily? That they I, should... I, think, I think just speaking for myself, I would yeah. say many of the people who I admire most in the industry seem to share this quality that they didn't really want to be in advertising until all of a sudden they did. Right. And so, you know, their passion um, for sports or for creative writing or for Greek mythology or whatever it was that they were studying without maybe a, a hard and fast agenda found its way, uh, yeah. it continues to find its way you know, into their work and it's what makes their work interesting. Yeah. What kind of kid were you? Were you always this curious and, and uh, like what, what, what led to uh, being more, or did you go to, what did you go to school for? Yeah, well, I would, I would start by saying, um, I, I was the youngest of three boys. My oldest brother, Ali, is 10 years older. My middle brother, Amir, is six years older. And mm -hmm. we fall pretty firmly into the um, three-sibling cliche, which is, you know, the oldest brother learns that if you eat all your vegetables and get good grades, you know, you will get maximum love. And then the middle yeah. sibling learns that if you eat all your vegetables and get good grades, the best you can do is tie this motherfucker. Yeah. But if you do some other stuff, you can get your your, your own completely unique brand of attention. Um, so he was a little bit more mischievous. I'm quite a bit younger than both my brothers. And so I think that I ended up sort of being a hybrid of both. And by the time the third comes along, you know, the parents start to relax. So I think I kind of figured out like, you know, I can eat all my vegetables and get good grades and keep these guys off my back. But, you know, the other brother, you know, the evidence shows that, you know, smoking a little pot behind the baseball dugout is also pretty fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think I was sort of a hybrid of my two brothers. Right. In that so regard. you got to follow them and, and make sure that it was safe to uh, to do those things that, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like Bannister running the four minute mile. You know, it was impossible. And then he did it. And then like yeah. a thousand guys did it, you know, yeah. within the next month. It's once you once you know what's possible um, and you can wrap your head around it and contextualize it, it yeah. you know, it makes the impossible possible. I think that was certainly true of how I got into advertising as well. Um, 
seeing my brother sort of discover it first. Right. Uh, Your middle brother. Yeah, my middle brother, Amir, really discovered advertising on both our behalves uh, by accident. And how was that? Tell me that story. So Amir uh, graduated from the U of A, uh, where I where I ended up graduating from as well at the University yeah. of Arizona. Woo! Woo! Wildcats. And then um, he he moved to L.A. without any um, without a job and without a plan. And I remember sort of weeping for him, thinking, like, my brother is going to be he's going to be homeless in porn. Guy. Yeah, he's going to be in porn or, yeah. or homeless guy. Yeah. I hope in porn. Porn yeah. would have actually. I that would have been, been great, pleased. actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and through a friend of a friend, he ended up getting a job working at some place called Shia Day. Uh, answering fo- phones for some guy named Lee Clow. Okay. Um, so I went and visited him when and I was- And he just, out of, out of like, just randomly? Or how, how did how did he get that yeah, gig? One of our neighborhood friends had a sister who was a headhunter. Right. And uh, we grew up with this family and, and we were really close with them. And so she said, yeah, you know, we could always, we could use a receptionist. We could use someone to dub tapes and do yeah. grunt work. And uh, it's at an ad agency and, and we welcome right. you here. I was at the U of A once he got that job and I was- you know, studying political science and on the path to being a lawyer. And I went and visited him at Chiat Day and not to be sappy, but I could remember walking into that office and that was like that the was day it. everything changed. Yeah. Why? What what was it about that office that yeah. made you uh describe that office for Well, if you that, if you've ever know. been to Chiat Day, especially in the late nineties or early two thousands, I mean now with the internet you can see all these epic office buildings and yeah. sleep pods and apple chips. But back then, you know, that was not um that was not a that was not something that I was at least aware of if it existed at all. And you walk in and there's punching bags to the right with the founder's faces on them. And there's a full court <laughs> basketball court in the middle of the office. And the it's it's open air and everyone is dressed casually and everyone's hot. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, you know, there's, bo- there's boardrooms made out of surfboards and there's PlayStations everywhere. And I had just never seen anything like this before. I thought, again, that, you know, to be a serious person who the world took seriously, you, you wore a tie mm-hmm. and you... Um, you didn't show much of who you really were or, or 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 what you were really passionate about until you slid down that brontosaurus at five. You know? Yeah, yeah. So this was so you go in to meet him and you're just like, oh, my God, how do I how do I do this? What, what do I what, did you did your brain already start like changing to advertising? I'm, I'm changing my major. Yeah, it took time. It didn't happen immediately. I was still of the mind that, um, you know, I think when you're a young person, you know, I, at least speaking for myself, I was, you know, I was thinking about what I needed to be happy and fulfilled. And I was also thinking about, um, you know, what would make my parents and my friends and my community proud of me. And I think for me, being a, a lawyer would be would have been sort of the the path of least resistance to doing that. Yeah. My oldest brother became a lawyer and it was hardly a path of least resistance. He has his own law firm in Tucson and yeah. um, has accomplished incredible things and has brought a bowl game to Arizona, and I think he's wow. got a lot more up his sleeve. Um, so it's you know I, I look at it like whether it's advertising or whether it's the law. Yeah, I think maybe the observation that I've made now is you know there's no dream job. My dream job, if you ask me, in my teenage years would be that I wanted to play in the NBA. Uh-huh. Well, you get a little older and you hear from NBA players, and the games are fun. But if you're really serious about being a professional athlete, you spend a lot of times in ice baths yeah. and on planes away from your family, you make a lot of sacrifices. So I think no matter what profession you end up in, I think what you realize is- It's hard. It's hard and you better love the part that you love enough to make up for the parts that you inevitably will not love. You're not gonna love every single aspect of it. Right. So the parts you love, you better really love. Yeah, that's great. That's really great advice uh, for all the all the kids out there. Um, what, uh, 
what what happened after that? So you go back to U of A, you you continue doing your your law. You, you finished. I finished. Um, I worked for the governor of Arizona's office, uh -huh. um, just kind of stalling and buying some time. I felt like I was seeing my brother experience some success, and and um, by this point he was a, he had gone to ad school and he went to BBH and he did a campaign called the Game Killers for Axe, and it led to this television show on MTV and. I was really proud of him, and he and I sort of just had a creative bond from childhood. Yeah. Um, and he was really, you know, I think he was feeling a sense of longing in me, and so he started to kind of seed this idea that, you know, you could you, should you do, could this, do this, you would enjoy this. So he was working with Cash Shree? He was. Yeah, because yeah. I had him, he was sitting right here, and we were talking about Game Killers and Tom, BBH I'm a fan and... of the pod. I heard oh, right. the interview. Right, right. And you just... said you were a fan of the pod. I wasn't I wasn't sure if you were just blowing smoke. Let's just go ahead and lay the groundwork right now that this interview will not be as, as exciting and nourishing as Cash Shree's interview, nor should it be. That was great, right? He was, I was, I'm always impressed with everyone who comes in here uh, because the stories are are incredible and I feel like I'm so lucky to be sitting uh, next to people that are so smart. Uh, but Cassius was, yeah. I, was... I mean, as a quick detour, I will say as a fan of the pod, like, <laughs> and as a fan of advertising, I think, you know, there are the traditional ways that we get acquainted with the people whose work we admire in the industry. Yeah. And in terms of getting exposure to them, whether it's Eric Silver or Rob or Cash or yeah. Ty Montague, you know, it, it usually boils down to a few quotes in an article. Yeah. Um, I think this long form version is is just so helpful for people who are interested in getting to the business, getting yeah. into the business right now. Yeah. Um, Ty, Ty was another one that was incredible. Yeah, they were they, they've all been so good. And yeah. I, I do miss it. I haven't done this for for probably a month or, or so. But uh, yeah. So thank you for coming down. Let this help you rediscover your love. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I haven't had time. <laughs> um, so okay, so your brother, uh, your brother says like, "Hey, you can do this too." Yeah. Uh, what are your parents saying at this point? Don't follow your brother into that hor horrible hell hole. <laughs> I, I'm keeping. Yeah. <laughs> I'm keeping them uh, at a safe distance, not leading on that I'm having this sort of flirtation with another career. Yeah. Um, the the I would say the the real pivotal moment in my decision came in my my pivotal turning point in making the decision to go to advertising after a lot of um, a lot of prodding and uh, and sort of confidence building for my brother was when Honda Gur came out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I remember he sent that to me, and that was the darling of the industry. And we've yeah. seen a lot of great, you know, animated advertising films since then. Yeah, I had never seen anything like that before. Right. Um, and I, I still watch it like once a year, and it still sends complete shivers down my spine. Not just because it's a work of, you know, artistic creative beauty. Yeah. Um, but I, I just became so. I, I found the story behind that piece so romantic. The idea that these create these creatives at Wyden. London kind of didn't know how to promote a diesel engine and they went and they spoke to the engineers at Honda and Honda engineers basically said, well, you know, where we started with this was we hate diesel engines. Diesel engines are disgusting and, you know, they're, they emit um, and pollute. And so, you know, we were really sort of motivated by hate and to use that as the, as the insight yeah. really spoke to me. And I think that's where I understood that I could sort of merge my creative interest with some with some business and strate strategic ins, uh, strategic ins, uh, interests that I had yeah. that were to that point sort of untapped. Right.
So that that whole idea of because, yeah, a lot of people think like, oh, advertising, they sit around. I mean, we've all seen uh, the TV shows yeah. uh, from Melrose Place to 30 uh, something where they just sit around, and they throw a Nerf ball around and they come up with crazy ideas. But it really isn't that it's uh, it's finding out where this thing came from and communicating it to the world in a way that's art, that's yeah. artful and, and fun and. Uh, entertaining. Um, that's well, you, great. That you've you seen saw it. That. You've seen it through your career, Tom. I mean, like you, you work with a lot of different kinds of creatives, and I think what you realize is, you can be sort of on the spectrum: eighty percent business, twenty percent creative, or you can yeah. be ninety percent creative and ten percent business. Yeah. But you have to sit somewhere on that continuum. If you're a hundred percent creative, you're not going to like this business, and yeah. you should move to France and paint. Yeah. And if you're 100% business, then the a creative department and agency isn't for you. Right. Um, so you can be successful all along that continuum, but you right. sort of have to figure out where you sit on that. I think for me on any where given you, day- Where do you sit? Yeah, I think on any given day, I'm sort of 60-40 or 40-60, depending on sort of what the the assignment and the and the timing calls for. Yeah. Um, so continuing the story, you uh, you then, you, you see Gurr and you're like, what, what does that do to you? Describe what what Gur is. It's a it's an animated film. Yep, it's an animated film um, to an original musical piece um, that basically can hate be good, right? Yeah, That's it, the it proposes the question: Can hate be a good thing? Can hate motivate you yeah. um, to create positive outcomes for the world? Right. And so they call it Gur because this song was you know this song was created in the in the key of Gur. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it really came you know right out of those conversations that those creatives were savvy enough to have with the actual and that engineers. was London Wyden. It was London Wyden. Yeah. 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 Very. And I think good. this was two thousand and um, three or four. <laughs> and so that was really the turning point moment. Um, I got into law school. I, I I remember walking out to the mailbox with my deposit of five hundred bucks, which just felt like all the money in the world, and sappy as it may sound, I, I stood at that mailbox and my life flashed before my eyes. Um, and I walked back inside without putting the check in the mail. A couple of weeks went by. I sort of broke the news to my parents, who were, you know, briefly heartbroken. Um, wow. But you know, that heartbreak was actually really useful for me. I went to Miami Ad School, and you know, Miami Ad School, as the name implies, is located in Miami. Mm -hmm. Miami is a place where you can have a lot of fun. Yeah. And I did have a lot of fun, but I also had a real sense of urgency and purpose um, to prove my parents wrong, you know, yeah. and to prove that I was making the right decision. Yeah. Um, so to that point, like you're, 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 you have a purpose, you, you know uh, what it's going to be like, you sort of know what you want to do um, when you're in ad school or college or anywhere and you're, you know, and you're purposeful about it, there's lots of kids around you and people around you that are just like, ah, it's just sure. advertising. How do you get past that? Like people wanting to, let's just go out, let's go to the beach and. Sure. How do you, I mean, look, it, it's, it, you're right. You just like. From Miami ad school to Harvard and every, you know, yeah. institution in between, you're going to get out what you put in. And, you know, as they say at Harvard, like. To get to Harvard, you know, you have to be the smartest kid within 100 miles, and then you get there, and someone's got to be the biggest partier, and someone's got to be the dumbest kid. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, those uh, those distinct distinctions are constantly getting recalibrated as you go to different places. I just felt like, um, you know, in a lot of ways, ad schools aren't aren't educational institutions. They really more resemble trade schools. Mm -hmm. And so, you need to go and, you know, either you walk, come out knowing how to snake a toilet or you don't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Um, and so I, yeah, I think it was also helpful to, um, to be able to consult with my brother about certain things. Yeah. I will tell you, I mean, I knew right away I wanted to be a writer. I can remember sitting in a Photoshop class, um, not really getting the hang of it. Yeah. And uh, I was, um, I was I chatting with my brother on my computer and he goes, so what class are you in? And I go Photoshop and he goes, dude, you should just probably stop paying attention to that. And I, I said, why? And he goes, your problem is if you learn that stuff too well, you're gonna get into your first job in an agency and you wanna be a writer. And if they find out you know how to do that, you're yeah. gonna end up in a studio. So it's very yeah. important that you maintain your ignorance about Photoshop. Yeah. Yeah. That was you know, very trenchant oh, advice. Oh, wow, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, because the art directors, they gotta stay late. That's right. They're they're uh, they're all night. You know the problem with being an art director is the <laughs> title is way more regal from the start. So yeah, you make a decision. Yeah. You got your art. That's good. And yeah. you got your director. I mean, that Ooh. sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm telling you. You know, copywriter sounds like you're 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 like editing for grammatical mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the ruse. But what what is the real job of a copywriter and an art director? Yeah, I mean, I think. I think those titles are becoming more nebulous in a great way, um, especially as you know, technology doesn't require art directors to be to particularly have those hard and fast art skills, sketch skills. Mm -hmm. um, but I think so. I think those definitions can change depending on what you bring to a partnership. But you know, I think as a writer, you know, first and foremost, um, I'm a huge fan of. The Wu-Tang Clan growing mm -hmm. up, another huge influence for me. And the Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan has a line that says, make it brief, half short, twice strong, which is, I think, such a beautiful line that says, like, you know, can you be concise and can you pack, you know, triple the punch, you know, in a third of the space? Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, like so many people in advertising, like I love being on the train, reading headlines on subway trains, even to this day, because you just... You know, you can hear the conversations in the room that led to either a great headline or a dumbed down headline. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's headline writing. I think if you love comedy and if you love hip hop, those things find their way in music and lyric writing. I think those things find their way into copywriting mm -hmm. um, and your own personal style finds its way into copywriting. But, um, you know, probably the, you know, the the simplest version of it is the copywriter is the one who is most responsible for articulating the idea in an interesting way. Right. Um, an idea that, you know, was birthed by he or she and their partner. And uh, so, yeah, so a lot of those influences that I had, I think, growing up were sort yeah. of useful to to my transition as a copywriter. It's the first uh, Jizza uh, quote we've had on the, on the show. Uh, I think Ty Montague think. may have mentioned the Jizzo, or at least Old Dirty Bastard. He did, but it wasn't a quote. It was just about <laughs> some story about them going out one night, I think. I don't know. Go back and check the uh, check the tapes. Can we check the tapes? All right. <laughs> um, so how did you get to Crispin? Was that yeah. just because you were in Miami and your brother said, stay there, do Crispin? Yeah, he went did to he Creative Circus. He went to Creative Circus. Um, Atlanta? In Atlanta, and yeah. I said, which ad school should I go to? And he goes, you could either move to Atlanta or you could move to South Beach. And so the, the answer seemed pretty right. clear to me. Um, why ad school? Yeah. Why did you go to, why did you say like, I should go to ad school? Because your brother went to ad school? Pretty much, you know, he was at Chiat. He wanted a job there bad. He had really ingratiated himself with a lot of the top creatives there. Yeah. And even then, they still told him, if you want a job as a creative here, you need to go to ad school first and then come back. So just... Anecdotally, it was clear to me that, yeah. you know, this was a thing that you needed to do. You needed to go and create, you know, a book. 
uh-huh. um, of fake ads that show your taste and your you know your ability to think on your feet. And, right. And so um, yeah, I think it was just that. And I went to Miami Ad School. Uh, it's an eight quarter program over yeah. two years. And in my um, in my fourth quarter, I got an internship at Crispin Porter, which had just moved. Um, at the behest of Alex from Miami to Boulder. So I, I moved to Boulder for a quarter. Right at that time, actually, incidentally, my brother um, had left BBH and got a job there. So we overlapped during my quarter as oh, an intern okay. at Crispin. Um, and that yeah. was really helpful because- The Farhang brothers. Yeah, it was really the the only ver- the only formal version of the Farhang brothers in advertising. Right. By the time yeah. I got hired, he had, he had left to go to 180 uh, and become a creative director on Adidas. But- um, it was a it was a great period of time. I lived in his basement. Um, he and our friend Donnell Johnson had a house, and I paid him a couple hundred bucks to live in their basement and be the king, awesome. of, king of the spiders down there. Um, yeah. And I just, when I got to Crispin as an intern, I just immediately felt like I was home, and I just felt like this is where I belong. Yeah. And their creative taste just so perfectly aligned with, I won't say w- what mine was at the time, but what, what I wanted mine to be, right. you know, what my aspirations for what a creative was. And yeah. You know, they they had become famous long before I showed up, and in fact, long before I even knew advertising was a profession. Uh-huh. And so, there was certainly um, it wasn't lost on me that um, this was an opportunity that you know might not come around again. So I definitely showed up as an intern, really shot out of a cannon, tried to get myself on as many assignments as possible, tried to behave not like an intern, but like you know, a junior copywriter, um, jumped in on projects with my brother, jumped in on projects with people who I had sort of made fast friends with, mm-hmm. um, and uh, sold a couple things that, you know, are typically difficult for an intern to sell. Yeah. What was your first uh, sold thing? Uh, working with um, the great Tony Calcao, it was a, um, it was a print ad for Jiro. And um, I just remember helmets, right? Helmets, uh, helmets. Yeah, yeah. And and my brother's advice I, I took very seriously, which is you know if, if any of these guys give you an assignment, overdo it to death. Like you know, Tony asked for a headline, so I wrote two hundred headlines. Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Bob Sinfroni asked for a a fifteen second um, uh, radio spot for Burger King Spain. Yeah. And I wrote like. 50 scripts. You know, I think when you first start, you've never made anything and you really don't know how an idea is going to translate from a Word doc or a PDF to to, real, to reality. Yeah. And so the way you counteract that is just like, I'm going to write down every single thing I can possibly think of. Yeah. Um, and then you're the genius. And if you point to one and tell me it's good, right? then I've done my job. Right. You know? And that gives you the skills to write more as well. Like yeah. you, you can uh, ide- ideation and coming up with lots of, yeah, quantity. It's yeah. quantity when you're that when you're new because yeah. you don't know what quality is yet. Right? It's really laborious. You don't know what quality is yet, and um, and so you end up, you know, you end up writing a lot of stupid things on a page, you know, for yeah. that reason, and just sort of praying that the people who you respect so much will identify something, and the implication almost being like, I'm going to hang all of this on the wall, and when you point at something, yeah, you know you're a god of advertising and I respect you so much and I want your respect so much. So when you circle this thing and say that it might be interesting or might be good, I with full faith and confidence can stay up all night for the next two nights working on it with the belief that if you say there's something there, there must be. Right. Um, But it's also really intimidating walking into an agency like that. Um, I remember another early assignment was for Miller High Life. Um, And, you know, Miller High Life ads Prior to Crispin, especially the the yeah. widen ads. Yeah. I mean, those are so, that's some of my favorite advertising of yeah. all time. And I just remember just Dick. being parallel. Yeah, Dick. I just remember being 
um, paralyzed by my reverence for the you know the the campaigns that had come yeah. before me. Yeah. Um, and I ended and up the presenting. Earl Morris stuff that uh, Jeff Kling did, right? The Especially Kling, that, like that, that was incredible. Yeah, which I think time the, was a man knew how to control his machines. You know. Yeah, yeah. Don't ask this, what's in the hot dog. The hot dog should ask, you know, what's in you? What are you? What are you made of? What do you provide to the social? They were so ahead of their time. They were uh, they were viral videos waiting to happen uh, before viral videos. They were. In fact, they were more special because you couldn't dial them up up anytime you wanted yes and so when you did see them you know it was sort of eventized yeah 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 oh there's that one shut up i want to listen to this ad yeah yeah miss those times anyway so there's always um, that point in this conversation where we go into like (laughs) we're old people and the internet wasn't a thing when we were hey it's hard to it's i'm honored to be an old person i'm i'm waiting for the time where somebody's like what do you mean uh, Miller High Life ads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be sitting in one of these conversations, and somebody's not gonna know, and I'm gonna be like, "Oh, that's it. I'm, <laughs> this, this is podcast this, over. This is the part where I jump off the building." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. So anyway, it was it was um, a, it was a one quarter internship. Um, a couple ads sold. I helped. I, I was part of a, a Sprite TV ad that sold, which is unusual for an intern to be a part of and get yeah. invited into. And did and you get to go to the shoot? No, no, no. I, I actually wasn't even aware that it got made until oh, it did. As right. well, I shouldn't have been. Right. I yeah, contributed no. some ideas that ended up in a script for a writer who showed it to an ACD, who showed it to a CD. By the time it got to him, you know, he's he doesn't know all the steps that 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 it took to reach him. Did your brother keep you from making the mistakes that a lot of young kids make, where they're like, "Fucking guy doesn't know what good is," you know, like like like. He didn't pick my ad, like, fuck that guy, you know, like the whole, did your brother keep you from making any, like, stupid rookie mistakes? For sure he did. I mean, I think, I think and I- And what were they? Yeah, I, so I benefited- Keep I, some kid from making those. Yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> benefited um, from my, um, from my ignorance about the true sort of, about the industry in general and about the probably the greatness of Crispin in particular. Yeah. It was helpful in a lot of ways to not know, you know, all the ways in which in which um it was helpful to not know all of you know all of the accolades and all of the achievements. Okay. Um at the same time I think my brother helped counterbalance that because my brother way more than I was was a true student of the industry and became a student of the industry while at Shiat. Yeah. Um and so yeah, I think what you said is really accurate, which is, you know, you're going to work really hard and you're going to give this to Rob or to, or to, you know, Bill Wright. And when they don't pick your ad, don't you dare, don't you dare so much as imply that some, you know, miscarriage of justice has happened because they didn't select your ad. You're lucky to be here. You're lucky that they're giving you the time to go through your work. Yeah. Um, And it's a privilege to be here. And I think just sort of having that, the respect for the people who are there and him kind of explaining to me, like, you know, hey, you see that guy over there in the T-shirt? That's not just some guy in a T-shirt. You know, right. that guy has made ten of your favorite things of the last decade. Yeah, um, that was helpful. It was also helpful that we worked together, but my brother was doing great work, and as a result, was constantly on the road. So I think mm. at the beginning we were working closely together, and then he was, you know, off on shoots and doing his own thing, and that was important for me, I think, as well to sort of cut the cord and 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 fly on my own. Yeah. And when did you do that? Where did you go? Well, so. I would say sort of halfway through the internship that happened. Um, and and then as the internship came to a close, this was right around the holiday break, um, I was I was angling hard for a full-time job. 
And by this point, I had gotten to know um, Rob Riley pretty well, and I had gotten to work pretty closely with Andrew Keller, and I had gotten to work a little bit with Alex to the point that he had at least maybe recognized my face, and I had sort right. of weaseled my way into his office to show him work a few times. Yeah. So I had this sort of master plan. I was going to take all of the work that I had helped produce, I was going to show it to Alex, and I was going to sort of make my impassioned plea to get a job so that I didn't have to go back to ad school. And mm-hmm. so I was working with his assistant in the sort of weeks leading up to um, my final day as an intern, getting on his schedule. And um, as, it, as, as it shouldn't come as much of a shock, like I sort of just getting, kept getting bumped off the schedule for more important things. Yeah. But I think his assistant sort of found it charming that I kept coming back to reschedule. And yeah. she, she was really working with me to see if she could sort of, you know, scoot me in for 15 minutes. Yeah. Eventually, it was my last day as an intern, and I that, that the meeting never happened. And so my master plan was, well, I'm just going to bring my work, and I'm going to show up at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to sit in his office, and he's just going to have to reckon with that. Um, and so I, I uh, first I ask his assistant what kind of coffee he likes because, yeah. you know, what a good gesture to bring some coffee. And yeah. at that time, this is surprising now for the health-conscious Alex Pogusky, but at that time, he was really into Starbucks mochas. Yeah. So I go to Starbucks at 6.30 in the morning. I get a mocha. It occurs to me that by the time I meet this guy, it might be 9 o'clock in the, in the morning, and this is going to be really cold. So I buy off the shelf from Starbucks a, a metal thermos. <laughs> I put the mocha in a thermos. I enter the office at about 6.50. Um, what I didn't account for was that, you know, Alex is an early riser, and he had already come to work and had already gotten his workout in by 6.45 and was the first person at his desk. Oh, my God. So I sort of approach his office. Um I hand him a thermos and tell him his favorite drink is there in a sort of unbranded mug. He never takes a sip off the drink, which I found sort of bizarre at the time. I kept sort of going like, aren't you going to enjoy your drink? In hindsight, you know, if someone brought me (laughs) an unbranded metal thermos and told me my favorite drink was inside, I'd probably raise an eyebrow. So I don't blame him for not drinking it. But I sat down and I, uh, you know, I kind of I kind of made my case. I was really nervous. Um, you know, there was sort of no, there was no one else in the office, so he didn't really have an excuse to uh, to 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 not at least hear me out. And um, you know, a small connection was made. I kind of ended my plea with a line that my brother and and another friend gave me, which was, "If you let me stay here, I'll stock the fridges. I love being here. I feel like I can contribute here. It's an honor to be here, and and I'll do whatever it takes." And I did sort of see a little sparkle in his eye when I said that I would stock the fridges. Yeah. He, he never did make me stock the fridges. The conversation ended with him saying, "You know, you've you've you say you've worked with Rob and you've worked with Andrew. Let me talk to a couple guys and let me think about it." And I said, "Great." So. Uh, Rob actually had reached out to me. He said, hey, did Alex ever get back to you about that? And I said, no. And so I went back home to Tucson for the holiday break, and I was sort of deciding, do I enroll in my fifth quarter or do I go back to Crispin? You know, he didn't say no, but technically he didn't say yes either. Right, right. Um, or I, I have that the other way around. You know, he didn't say yeah. yes, but he also didn't say no. Right. And so I just booked a flight back to Boulder, and my thought was, look, I'll just keep showing up to work, and the worst thing that's going to happen is I'll get escorted out by police uh, and maybe that will be sort of a, a charming story in its own right. Yeah. And um, so I nervously dropped out of ad school and booked a flight back to Boulder without a job. And while I was at the airport about to board my flight back to back to Boulder, I remember my my Moto Razor ringing. Yeah. And it was the HR person, Crispin, telling me that um, they'd be delighted to offer me, you know, thirty thousand dollars to be a junior copywriter. Wow. Which when I heard that number, I was like, 
I've been paying to go to ad school. I mean, I would have yeah. done this job for free. You're yeah. telling me. It's a huge swing. It's a huge swing. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was one of the most sort of satisfying two hours on an airplane. That That's incredible. Yeah. You must have just felt like a rock star at that point. Yeah. I mean, you when you when if you, if I had gotten that news while grounded, I would have felt like I was flying. So yeah. to actually be flying moments later was, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I was. That's awesome. Yeah, I was orbiting. Uh, how long were you there at Crispin? I was there for um, a little over five years, and uh, and worked very closely with with uh, Andrew and Rob, who you know still to this day are are dear friends and yeah. mentors to me. And Andrew is now at Facebook. Yep. And Rob is at McCann, and you yep. are at uh, at Momentum, which is part of McCann, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Momentum that... is a sort of sister agency that's part of McCann World Group, and and I definitely owe Rob a huge debt of gratitude for um... that. Was from that connection that you that you, that you yeah got there yeah I had um, I had moved to New York and 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 had been freelancing around, and and Rob put me in touch with the CEO of Momentum, and they were looking for a CCO, and certainly. When you're a first-time CCO, I think what you realize is like when you're interviewing for those jobs, yeah. agencies would rather hire a person who's been a CCO before and has yes. burned the place to the ground than yeah. to give someone a chance as a first-time CCO. You yeah, know, I think we, it's human nature to sort of only let people do what you've seen them do. Yeah. So um, how do you how do you talk somebody into like I can do this? Yeah, I mean, I think your, uh... I think for me. It was helpful that I had a real immediate connection with Chris Weil, the CEO of Momentum, and and he um, he and I just had a real we, we we were able to sort of break through the cliches of interviewing and get to a really honest place. And that yeah. honest place was, you know, Chris, um, Momentum has for a long time been a live events agency. Live events has made way to experiential. Yeah. To me, experiential is not that different than what we called interactive in 2010 at Crispin, yeah. which is you know things beyond traditional advertising that you sort of bang together that yeah. make loud and interesting noises. And um, and I know I can improve the work almost immediately. I also know there are elements of this job that I don't even know what I don't know. And I'm definitely going to make some mistakes and I'm definitely going to um, send some emails that I wish I could have back almost immediately. And right. by the way, those things have all happened. Yeah. And his response to that was, I understand. Um, I accept those terms. I want yeah. the work to get better. And that's stuff that you don't know yet. I can help you with that. And you'll yeah. make mistakes. And hopefully we only make them once. Yeah. And so just coming in without without that, um, you know, it's it's like what, usually when you interview for a position, either the, the place really wants you, so they sell you a false bill of goods, or you yeah. really want it. So you sell, you know, an elevated or misleading version of yourself. Yeah. And what you're ultimately doing is sort of like creating, you know, pre premeditated resentments. Yes. Um, when you're when the relationship isn't on on an honest foot doesn't start on an honest footing so right. that's been incredibly beneficial I think yeah and you've been there for three years now three or years almost in November years. Yeah. Uh, and what is some, what are some of the your things that you've you've loved that you've made there you know one of my favorite things that we've made that I, I really enjoyed doing was for um, our client SAP uh, during the NBA Finals last year and it was. Uh, they wanted to do just some interesting and funny content around the NBA Finals and SAP's role in the finals. And so we created a, a piece that we really approached not as advertising content, but a sort of entertainment content. It was called The Simple Report. And it sort of emulated PTI or like a Jesus and Mero type show, sort of two talking heads with the insight that, um, you know, SAP makes data and analytics so simple that... Um, a kid could explain it. Right. And then sort of the interesting part was that these weren't just any kids. We used the son of Dwayne Wade and the son of Chris Paul. 
Uh, and so what was really great about that was on, that on a on a on a quite a meager budget, uh, we were able to make some fun and entertaining content that was almost immediately tweeted out by the proud fathers yeah. and in Dwayne Wade's case, the proud stepmom Gabrielle Union to their millions and millions of followers. Use there was sort of a free media plan built in. Yeah, that's genius. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, I don't think I've seen that. Uh, I got to check it out. Yeah. Um, so you got to work with NBA stars in the, in the end anyway. Yeah, know, I've you, always, that's right. You yeah. wanted to, you wanted to, and now that's where your stories come from of like, you talk to them and like, yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, work, working at Crispin, um, working at a place like Crispin, you definitely, you know, at a young age, you get opportunities you don't deserve working on brands that you haven't totally proven yourself enough to work on in exchange, yeah. like so many, like so many great agencies, you know, in exchange for having a, a youthful and sort of irrationally optimistic belief in yourself and what's possible and, yeah. and giving a lot of energy. And so you end up working with a lot of athletes and celebrities working at these agencies. And you, I think yeah. often still to this day, I'm oftentimes on sets with athletes and celebrities kind of going like, yeah, you know, what am I doing here? I still, I, I haven't lost that feeling that I, I remember having in my first years at Crispin, which was I kind of felt like someone ev inevitably would come stand in my doorway and go, all right, man, the jig's up. You got to be <laughs> a lawyer found, now. We found you out. We found you out. You got to be a lawyer now. To which yeah. my response would be, cool, I'll pack my things. Thank you so much for letting me stay as long as you did. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so you, uh, what's, what's, What's new from here? Like, what do you what do you look for in the future? What do you what do you look for? Uh, what are you excited about in the business? Yeah, well, I think it was eye opening for me prior to taking the job at Momentum to um, to freelance around. You know, when you when you're working at Crispin and Boulder, it, it sort of feels like being in Biosphere Two a little bit. It's right. a very enclosed environment, and especially yeah. during the, the the Alex era when you know it was long hours. Um, mm -hmm. Which I'm sure it still is. Yeah, but um, it is. <laughs> it was really great to. Yeah, I'm sure it was really great to um, just get to know the industry and to freelance around. And I that think is what, a really invaluable when you've got yeah. enough under your belt to do that. I did it for two and a half years before yeah. this job, uh, and yeah, it's great. You get yeah. to see things. But what did you see? Well, and look, I mean, look at what's some of the most awarded work of the last two years. It's you know, it's Fearless Girl and it's Field Trip to Mars. Um, and survival billboard, all from McCann, who, you know, McCann was the bad guy in Mad Men. McCann, yeah. when you think about, you know, sort of old school, traditional, monolithic agencies, McCann would be one of the first you would name just because of the history of the agency. Right. And here is this quote unquote traditional agency doing some of the most interesting and provocative and award winning experiential work, you know, work that, as John Maskell describes it, it's ideas that you, release into the wild and you don't know exactly the impact they'll have or what they'll do or yeah. you know, as if releasing a, a tiger into the wild, you know something's gonna happen and someone's yeah. face is gonna get bitten off. You just yeah. don't know to what extent. Um, and so what that tells me and what I learned freelancing is, you know, I think there used to be this distinction of you know, traditional creatives versus, you know, non-traditional or experiential creatives. The truth is no matter where you work or how old school the agency you work at is now, at very least that stuff better be in the deck. It better be in the presentation so that when you present the idea to a client, you go, hey, here's the TV and here's the print, and here's the at-home. And by the way, like, why don't we turn this into a music festival? And then, hey, by the way, why don't we point some cameras at this and turn this into like episodic content? We could pitch it to networks yeah. to which a client will often say, man, I, I love the thinking. It's so dynamic and 360 and your reward for all of this is gonna be 
um, we'll let you make the first four pages of your PDF. Yeah. Like you yeah. can you can now make the TV and print. Now that I know that it is a big idea, we're not yes. we're obviously not going to do all that shit. But just knowing <laughs> that it's possible tells me that this is a great creative idea. Yeah. As a result of this, I think all the you know the the pool of creative talent to bring to an experiential agency expands because now you have all these creatives who have to think this way in order to have good meetings and sell TV. Yeah. Um, and now they have this sort of Rolodex of ideas that, you know, exist only for the purpose of creating good meetings <laughs> that selling. they actually yeah. want to make. Yeah. And so, you know, my pitch to them is like, come make it here. This is what our clients come to us explicitly for. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, uh, now that you're at Momentum and you've been doing all this experiential, it's, it's, you know, that is what clients come to you for. But how do you sell experiential to clients that, maybe don't know what the return on investment is, maybe don't, you know, like are worried that like, what am I going to get out of this? Yeah. You know, like anything in a career. Yeah, for sure. Like anything in a career, you know, it's like it requires um, talent and it requires tremendous luck and timing. And I think the, the luck and timing in this regard is that, you know, many of the largest clients in the world, our main client, uh, American Express, our longest standing client, American mm -hmm. Express, I should say, um, sort of being one of the the great forefathers of this, um, have really now that now that large clients have done more experiential work, yeah. they've also become way more sophisticated about how they measure results and how they communicate success. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as large brands see other large brands that they admire do it, um, you know, it's it's hard to be the first at anything. You know, there's yeah. a reason why after Gurr, there were. A Always, million yeah. animated original songs, like you know, yeah. we're in we're in very much a an also ran industry. After yeah. we created Whopper Freakout, the greatest the greatest um, compliment I remember, well, you know, was one by one every other fast food um, company did their own version of it. Yeah, and I think I think everyone wants to do something original. Everyone knows what to say. Hey, I want to do something that's never been done before. I want to do yeah. something that's original and thought provoking and provocative. Mm -hmm. um, and I want it to look like that. Yeah. You know, well, okay, th there's, a, there's a contradiction to reconcile there, which is, well, if we make it look like that, then it won't be any of those other things because it's already happened. So what yeah. are the qualities of that thing? Yeah. And how do we apply them to do something that as you as you and only you as a brand can do? Yeah. And you can't control it as right. much as you maybe could control a, a TV spot where you're casting and yeah. you're, you're uh, shooting, editing and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for coming. Is there, are there any questions that I have asked? You're, you're a student of the pod. Are there any questions that you were hoping to be asked that I didn't ask? Because <laughs> um, I, I – uh, yeah. The only one that I had loaded up, but it doesn't – but it was um, – there was a, a term that Alex had coined. Yeah. And the term was malicious obedience. Oh, wow. What is we, malicious obedience? So malicious obedience – We've all experienced it as young creatives, yeah. which is you go in to show work to a creative director and um, the creative director inevitably will change or alter or tweak your work. And as a young creative, even though your creative director has accomplished so much and you've accomplished so little, you feel like they're ruining your work. You know, sometimes God forbid to sell a product or service. Right. And so to stick it to them, what you do is you take their feedback and you come back with their work. You come back with your work having applied their feedback in such a way that it sucks. Yeah. As if to communicate, well, I did exactly what you said. And see as you can plainly work. see, it sucks now. So yeah. you ruined it. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of young creatives deal with. And the truth is, as you start to learn what it is to be a professional, yeah. 
your job isn't just to yeah isn't just to accept feedback that sometimes you don't agree with. Your job is sometimes to accept feedback that you don't agree with and figure out how to fall in love with it, make it great, and and deliver and make it better than the thing you brought yes. the first time around. You know. Yes. I feel well, I this feel, has been great. I think this has been a, a really good uh, story for for everyone. Um, I really admire your work over there at Momentum. Um, I admire what Rob Riley's putting together. I think he's putting together such a great stable of smart people. Um, so good luck to you. And thank good. you, Tom. You know the the work that you're doing for our industry is important and it's inspiring. And and keep it up, man. All right. Thank you very much. So that was my chat with Amid. Super smart guy, super nice guy. Love that he's a fan of the pod. That was just, uh, I just revel in that stuff. I'm a, I love that stuff. This has been The A-List brought to you by uh, Ad House Advertising School. I'm Tom Chrisman. Thanks for listening. Please rate us and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share this podcast with a friend. It's the only way we don't really have an ad budget, even though we, we're ad people, you know? It's the whole cobbler's kids problem. I don't know. Look it up. And if you want to be interviewed for an upcoming episode, contact us through adhousenyc.com. Lauren Slaff will be happy to chat with you. Thanks, everybody. 